Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Psalms. We're looking at Psalm 36 this morning. We've been journeying through this section of the book of Psalms called Book One for several weeks, even a few months now. We come to chapter 36. And I have to say, for those of you who know me, you're probably aware of my love for a particular Old Testament term. Now, we could have sung another song, The Steadfast Love of the Lord Never Ceases, His Mercies Never Come to an End, They Are New Every Morning, Great is Your Faithfulness, O Lord. That's from Lamentations chapter 3, in the middle of the chapter, verses 21 and following. But did you know that term, steadfast love, where I'm going to say it, maybe I should say it by the way my daughter hates to say it, chesed, or hesed, it occurs 246 times in the Old Testament. In fact, if you turn to Psalm 136, it occurs there 26 times, but it's because it's part of a refrain. In fact, the audience is supposed to say as a refrain throughout that section of that psalm, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Now the vast majority of time that that term is used, it's used in connection with God. It's the steadfast love, mercy, covenant faithfulness, loyalty, however you want to interpret that word, of God. All of these terms remind us that in English we cannot grasp the full and total meaning and depth of this word. I find that one of the best ways to translate it in my own understanding is this term that I've heard by another. I can't remember which commentator it was. The phrase covenant faithfulness. It occurs three times in Psalm 36 as you ponder God's covenant faithfulness to his people. Here now, both someone who does not have covenant faithfulness and the importance of that term for those who do. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. As we consider these words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by David, A word that shall stand forever, let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, as we have just sung, you do speak through your word. Lord, let it rest upon us with ears to hear it and hearts to understand it. May it be something that we apply to our lives for your glory and for our good. 
And Lord, whatever is thought here, spoken here, or done here that is not consistent with your word, let it pass away and never be heard from again. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1989, a new baseball card company came on the scene called Upper Deck. As a high school small business baseball card owner, I had no idea whether this high-end product would be popular and be a hit for my clientele or not. So I only bought a couple of cases in order to sell at the first show that I was set up at to see how it would go. At the first show, my father and I set up our table amongst all the other tables in that hall of selling baseball cards and other memorabilia. And those two cases we opened up and we sold out in quick order. People were seeing the value of these cards, and from that time through the rest of that summer, people were spending all of their money in some cases to acquire just those products and cards particularly what was then the highest-known Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card. Now, Jesus, in the New Testament, talked about the pearl of great price and how someone sold all they had so they could buy that one pearl. He also tells another parable about the treasure in the field. Someone goes out and sees there's a treasure in a field, and he goes and he sells everything he has so he can purchase that field. And Jesus says, this is like the kingdom of God. But what is the heart of the kingdom of God? What is the heart of that great value and that great price? I think it's here in this psalm. Of course, the heart of the kingdom of God is God himself. And the character and nature of God himself that he even tells us he is like in the scriptures, particularly the book of Exodus, verse chapter 34, reminds us that God is a God of this term, hesed, covenant loyalty. And throughout this psalm, he tells us, first of all, what it's like for a man that does not have hesed, a man without it. Then he tells us the extent of this term hesed, the value of it, and how it brings protection to his people. But first of all, what is it like for someone that does not have the covenant faithfulness of God? You see, God must come to us and change our hearts. We are his people not because we earn it or deserve it or are good enough to get it, but because by God's grace he has entered our lives and caused us to come before him in humility and repent from our sins. But what about the man without Hesed? It's really kind of a terrible situation. These first four verses remind us of the difficulty of living a life without God's covenant loyalty and faithfulness to us. First of all, it tells us, That transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. Unfortunately, the Hebrew here has my heart, not his heart. And this is a reminder that this is a revelation that God has given David about the state and the mind and heart of a wicked person. Now, of course, David at times has been wicked himself. We know that. But at the same time, he's revealing to David the heart and soul of a wicked individual. 
First of all, there's no terror of God before his eyes. The word here for fear is not the ordinary word we think of for fear. Here it's trembling or terror. In other words, when he goes about living his life, it's almost as if he considers there is no God. There's nothing to be afraid of. You'll not be held accountable. And so it's therefore, it's not just no terror of God. But in place of God, what does he put? He puts himself. Verse 2 says, for he flatters himself in his own eyes. Why does he do this? This is kind of an interesting verse, very difficult Hebrew. It says here, he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. In other words, there is a part of him because every person is given in one sense a sense in his conscience of right and wrong. But when someone lives as if there is no God, and yet he feels guilty at times for what he is doing or thinking or planning in his life, he has to do something in order to make himself continue in his life of deception and sin. And so what does he do? He begins to self-justify his actions, and he begins to build himself up, and he says, I'm not that bad after all. After all, I'm just looking out for myself and my own interests just like everybody else. And so the world around us and the world in our homes and the world in our own hearts, if we've not been saved, or the world of our own hearts as we struggle with the temptation to sin is all about ourselves. We flatter ourselves. I know better than everybody else. I'm smarter than everybody else. Whatever it is, in order to avoid hating our sin. And of course, then what happens? How do we talk? Not just with a southern accent talking about Bojangles. We talk with trouble and deceit. We're liars. We're good at it. We talk trouble. In other words, we cause trouble. We gossip. We slander. We look down on people with the way we talk. We do all kinds of things to get our way and to continue our life of sin. Someone without God's faithfulness in their life will continue down this path of using their mouth to proclaim what their heart has already planned. Then it says, he has ceased to act wisely and do good. This idea of acting wisely is understanding or having insight. In other words, a person without the steadfast, loyal love of God cannot understand what it is to do what is pleasing in God's sight. In fact, without the Lord... Apart from him, we can do nothing, especially nothing good. So devolving down into the depths of our depravity, we begin to even fail to understand what it is to do good. Why, why should we be so surprised when people around us call evil good and good evil? Why should we be surprised in the spiral of decadence in our society that people continue to do things that were unfathomable even a few decades ago? This is the scriptural description of someone without God's covenant loyalty. 
So what will they do? They plan harm upon their bed or their couch. Now what do people do? If their whole life is tied up in themselves and not God, if they're looking for their own ways and not the kingdom ways, if they're looking to promote their own ideas and their philosophies, some of which that they've been captured by in the world, what are they doing? They're not planning to go out and worship God. They're not planning to go out and treat their neighbor well. They're planning to build themselves up and do harm to others. And so on their bed, on their couch, they're planning harm. But if it wasn't enough to plan it, they also act on it. He sets himself in a way that is not good. In other words, he will stand firm upon a bad path. We talk about that, don't we? Especially if we have a teenager and we don't like the direction he's going. We say he's heading down that dark path. And we do. In fact, it's the wide road that leads to destruction. That's what scripture says. And this is what every person without the loving kindness of God will go down. Is this path of destruction or this way that is not good. And what does he do? He will not reject evil. Now, he may reject certain types of evil. I've come across people who say, my word is my bond. I will never lie to anybody else. Well, you know what that means. They've just told a lie. (laughs) There's also the person who says, well, I'll never do that, and I'll never do that. But, But here it's a reminder. It may not be this brand of evil or that brand of evil, but you have your own personal brand that is full of evil, isn't it? He does not reject evil. In other words, his life is all about himself and the path that he's going down rather than the kingdom of God. Some of you have watched the news over the last two or three years since COVID came, and it's disturbing to you how the increase in looting in stores in our urban areas has taken place. You've been alarmed at the rise in violence In my neighborhood in Carolina Forest, just a couple months ago, somebody shot a security guard. You're disturbed at the heavily funded purveyors of immorality that were unheard of in the past. Children are not only talking back to their parents and teachers, but you can watch videos in YouTubes of them assaulting their teachers. How do we react to this? How do we understand when all of these things are taking place and we Christians tend to cringe and be afraid and terrified about what is to come? How should we react? Well, first of all, with realism. Of all people, we Christians should understand that the normal path and the normal way for people, apart from God's love, is destruction and violence and rebellion against God. It should not surprise us. I don't know why it does. It should not surprise us because without God intervening in our lives, this is the path of destruction we're going to go down. We should be realistic that there are people without this loving kindness who will continue to do these things as long as this time period takes place until Jesus' return. Secondly, we should have pity. Think of this, these are individuals without the key ingredient of a Christian. 
without God and without God's character and nature that is wrapped around this word hesed. We should have pity on them rather than just condemning them. That's not our job. God has already condemned them. We judge people within the church because God has given us this authority. But we do not judge people outside the church with condemnation because God has already condemned them. We simply tell them the truth about their sin and the path of destruction and we give them the good news of the gospel that God might do his work in their lives and bring them back. But third, we have faith. David was writing in a time when he saw his enemies. He had allies that turned against him. He had children that turned against him. He had friends that rebelled against him. And during these times, despite living in a world where he and we are surrounded by rebellion, our faith demonstrates that we have God's covenant loyalty. And that's why David turns around this psalm. Now, it's interesting, he could contrast the person without God's hesed with the person with God's hesed. But instead of doing that, he contrasts the person without God's loving kindness to God's loving kindness. So here it is. Your steadfast love, your hesed or covenant faithfulness or mercy or loyalty, however you want to translate that term, extends to the heavens your faithfulness to the clouds. This is the extent of this term. This is amazing. What's he saying here? What is this hesed, this loving kindness or steadfast love? What is this faithfulness? Or the word is reliability, stability. It is unlimited. It doesn't just pertain to my neighborhood or my house. It doesn't just pertain to my church family. It goes up to the heavens and to the clouds. In other words, it cannot be contained. It is unlimited. Then he combines that with two other terms, God's righteousness and his judgments. He says the righteousness is like the mountains of God. Now, what are the mountains of God like? They're immovable You cannot move the standards of God's righteousness. They will always be the same. Now tell that to a world that wants to change our morality standards. Tell that to a world that keeps moving the boundaries or tells us that your truth is your truth, but my truth is my truth, whereas God says my truth always stands and never changes. It is immovable righteousness. That is why we as Christians can never compromise on the standards of God's righteousness. They're immovable. His judgment, it says. What about his judgment? Like the great deep. Now the great deep may be a reference to the time of Noah when the great deeps opened up and the floods came upon the earth. It could be a reference to the fact that the sea in those days, as it is even today, is a place that is fearsome and is a place of mystery, and in that sense, his judgment is unfathomable. I have to say, I want to judge certain ways. Sometimes I think my judgment is the best. Don't you? 
not think that my judgment is the best. Maybe you think your judgment is the best. Or maybe you have some person you think that is the best judge. And yet when we see the judgments of God, we're amazed. He thinks of things we'd never think of. Who would have thought of God sending his own son to die on the cross for people's sins? That sounds ludicrous to a world watching that. His judgment is unfathomable. But in the end, of course, what is it altogether? It's salvific. Yes, that's a hard word to spell if you're filling out an outline. I know that. It says, man and beast, you save, O Lord. In other words, the great creator of the universe, as all of creation is groaning and longing for the sons of God to be revealed, God will protect his universe and his creation, but particularly the people of his covenant loyalty. The extent of this covenant loyalty cannot be contained. You see, God declares about himself in Exodus 34. Perhaps you remember those words to Moses as Moses is passing by and God says about himself, he says, I am Yahweh, and he says that he is abounding in hesed and faithfulness. But the interesting part of that context is he says this to Moses right after the golden calf episode. Right after Moses has thrown down the Ten Commandments and broken them, and the Lord has given him now a second set of stone tablets with these commandments, and God is passing by Moses and saying how full and abundant his covenant loyalty is. You see, here are the people of God. Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, the center of morality that they are supposed to be following. And they're out there worshiping other gods and committing terrible acts of sexual immorality. So much so that when Moses comes down, he throws down the Ten Commandments, breaks them into pieces, forces them to eat the ground powder of the golden calf to drink it in the water. And he goes back to God and God says, my covenant faithfulness is abundant. You see, our unfaithfulness cannot stop the covenant loyalty of the Lord. That's how wide and deep those words we sing in songs, how wide and deep is the love of God for his people. It's greater than our sin. It's unlimited. If you are his person, no matter how badly you mess up, he will not let you go. Jesus says that all of those given to me, none of them will be taken away. The extent of God's covenant loyalty is unlimited, immovable, unfathomable, salvific. That makes it valuable, doesn't it? How precious is your steadfast love. Oh God, that's the second time that steadfast love is mentioned or has said. The word precious means rare, costly, or valuable. Why is it so rare? Because we don't see it much in our lives, do we? Fathers leave their families on a regular basis. In some communities, 50 to 75% of fathers have left their children. The scriptures tell us that God is more faithful than the love that a mother has. Business partners sue each other. 
best friends in college campuses at some time will betray you and you will no longer be their friend. Breakups of marriages and partners and boyfriends and girlfriends take place every second of every day across our country. It is rare and costly for someone to be so faithful that they will be faithful even despite our unfaithfulness. So what does this value give us? This gem of Hesed. First of all, the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. This gives us protection. When the world around us seems like such a scary place that there's no one faithful to me, I'm all alone, and perhaps everyone seems to be against me, where can we turn? The one place we know we can turn is the Lord of the Bible. He is faithful beyond all other people. But on top of protection is provision. Isn't this a wonderful description? They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. The idea here is it's a communal meal. In fact, the illustration here is like the peace offering, where in Leviticus in particular, they would bring this peace offering and they would eat it with the priests. And as they ate that, it was as if they were in the very presence of God together, feasting on his mercy and his peaceful relationship with them. A God who is terrifying to them because of their sin. A God they cannot approach because the Holy of Holies is off limits. And if you go into that place, you were to die unless you were the high priest once a year. But in that feast... It was, in essence, a way for you to experience the community of God's presence. And here it says you feast on it. In fact, the word is you drink fully of the fat. And then you drink from the river of delights. Perhaps a reference to the rivers in Eden and the delights of the trees in the garden. Protection and provision, drinking from the river of joy, drinking fully of the fat. And then if that's not enough, there's also preservation. Look at verse 9. For with you is the fountain of life, and your light do we see light. You see, it's only in the covenant faithfulness of God, God's coming down to work in your life, coming down to establish that relationship with you where he will never let you go. The God who, despite all of your inconsistencies, despite all of the ways in which you fail him, despite those times when you have even rebelled against him, yet if you are a child of God, in him is life. Life. In him is light. I can remember a friend many years ago who had terminal cancer. At one point, the officers of the church came and prayed on this man that God might be merciful to heal him. Cancer had ravished his body. His wife of well over 50 years was by his side. His only living son was near him, a next-door neighbor, In his life, he had lost two grown sons, one of them to suicide. He'd experienced disappointment in ministry. They hadn't agreed with his particular calling, and so he chose to go into his chosen profession of pharmaceutical work rather than the ministry. Now his health was being taken away from him, and yet when you were by his bed, he was joyful and said he was ready. How? 
wasn't anything in him. He didn't have anything left. He was weak. His body was going to perish. He had no way to preserve his life. It was not in his own strength and purpose. It was in the covenant faithfulness of God to him. And think of this, this covenant faithfulness verse, with you as the fountain of life and your light do we see light. What does it say about Jesus in the first chapter of the book of John? In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He also says, I am the light of the world. In other words, he's saying here, in God's covenant faithfulness and loyalty and hesed, perhaps even thinking on those occasions of verse 9 of chapter 36 in the Psalms, he's telling them and expressing to them, I am the embodiment of the love of God for his people. In Christ is life and light and the mercy and steadfast love of the Lord. And then, of course... What does the believer do? David here has talked about how wonderful God's covenant loyalty is. He's talked about how the extent of this is unlimited. He's compared it to the person who has no hope or no reliability without the hesed of God. And so what does he do? Does he sit around twiddling his thumbs wondering if the enemy is going to win? No, he prays to God. With a simple prayer, continue your steadfast love to those who know you. The believer's desire is for Hesed's continuation. That's kind of funny. We we pray that. We we know that it's unlimited and the extent of it, it will never end. Even despite our unworthiness, he continues to give it. We know all this, so why should we pray for that? It's because of the relationship we have with God. Notice what it says. Those who know you. To be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and to be able to call yourself with honesty a Christian, you have to know God. You have to know him. Now, first of all, he knew you from before the foundation of the world. He knew you because he chose you. And in Christ, you have all these blessings because God came to you. But then as you understand that relationship, you begin to know God. And as you know God, you delight to say to God things like, I see the value of your loving kindness to me. Would you please just keep it up? Those moments of darkness in your life when you wonder what comes next. Perhaps you're in that time period where you don't know what's going to happen in your life, what kind of job you're going to have, what kind of marriage you might have, what kind of situation you might have, and it all seems overwhelming, and so easily everything can come crashing down, yet you can call out to God, just give me an assurance that your steadfast love will continue. And then what do believers do? They escape. They escape the foot of arrogance and the hand of the wicked. Now again, the feet here of his enemies, they escape the hands and feet of the enemies. What do you think of with the foot of arrogance? Now, I'm told by my wife, I think I've said this before, that I have the the ugliest feet in the world. 
And I have to say, you know, I'm one of those guys that when I played basketball in high school, the first time we started all the conditioning practice, what would happen is my feet would actually shred. They would shred in those sneakers. And my, it would be painful and sore, and they would shred up to uh, just skin flying everywhere, raw. This is what it looks like to God with your pride. The foot of the arrogant. Now you can look at this two ways. One of the ways you can look at this is the parent who is struggling in the Loudoun School District in Virginia right now because they have been threatened with curb stomping. Perhaps you saw that article in the news. For whatever reason, the enemies of this particular individual didn't like the position or the things that they were saying and promoting trying to protect parental rights in school board meetings. And so on their particular site, these enemies said, we want to curb stomp you. What does that mean? It means they take their head and they go down and they push it down on the sidewalk and stomp on their head. Murder. But it also, in this passage probably refers to this, the foot of the arrogant, victorious enemy who lays down over the one that he has defeated, lays them down on the ground and takes their foot in a symbolic measure and places it on their neck in order to show that they are the victors and they are proud of what they have done. If you're in the Lord and his loving kindness, no enemy can do that to you. They might be able to literally do that to you because they will do horrible things to you. They will persecute you. They will try you. In this life, you may not have roses and tulips. But we know that in the end, who has the victory? Jesus does. God has the victory. We will escape the foot of arrogance, both the foot of arrogance placed down on a defeated foe, as well as the foot of arrogance in me being arrogant against God. And then believers will see something amazing. They will see the evildoers lie fallen, thrust down, unable to rise. They will see the fall of evildoers. You see, this is an eschatology verse attached to the end of this psalm. This is a reminder that in the end, all of the enemies of God will be thrown down. I don't know how many times people have asked me, do you think we're in the end times? Do you think that everything is pointing to this particular situation and so forth? I have to tell you, just about every generation since the day of Christ has asked that question. And just because we in America haven't experienced the terrible persecutions that they have in the Middle East and China and India and North Korea and the list goes on and on, Just because this generation is surprised at what has happened does not mean that those in the generation of the Holocaust or those in the generation of the Huguenots being destroyed in France or the generation of whatever haven't experienced God's enemies and those feet of arrogance coming down on their necks. But the point of this is it's going to stop. God will have his victory. Why? Because he is faithful to his people. You see, Hesed is how Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, describes himself. Hesed is the hope for God's people who are in mourning. That's why Jeremiah writes in the middle of that terrible chapter describing his personal witnessing of the destruction of Jerusalem and the death of all that he knows. 
And he says in the middle of that poetic chapter, chapter 3, he says, your mercies are new every morning because your steadfast love never ceases. This is why the rare and costly gem of Hesed is where believers find refuge, enjoy God's presence and blessings, and persevere to the end. You're not going to persevere on your own efforts. You're not going to persevere by your own faith. You're only going to persevere by God's action on your behalf. You see, Hesed is not ours, but his. God wants us to be covenantly faithful. In fact, Micah 6.8, what does the Lord require of you? One of the things he requires of you is covenant faithfulness to him. And yet he knows you can't ever live up to that standard because we all fail. God is the only one with unlimited loyalty. And no matter what, this is our hope in the God that we know. And the God that we know is covenantally faithful to you because he loves you with an everlasting love, wider and deeper than you can possibly imagine, unfathomable in his judgment, immovable in his righteousness, unlimited in his reliability. Place your hope in that. Let's pray. Father, as we consider what you have done for us and what you continue to do for us, but particularly through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who died on the cross for us. Lord, in this life, we're going to face lots of enemies. Sometimes it's going to seem overwhelming. Lord, help us to seek refuge under your wings. Lord, help us to understand the value and the costly nature of that covenant love, even to the point of shedding the blood of your own son on the cross. Father, remind us of the precious nature of the fact that you will, in the end, defeat all your enemies, but you will also protect your people forevermore. Help us, Lord, to remember these things in these times. 